You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Creekside Church. We are so glad you could be here this morning. A couple reminders for next week. One, I believe next week is the last Sunday to drop off your Christmas child boxes. Uh, someone correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe next week is the week to bring those. And uh, the other thing next week is that there will be a potluck after uh, the service. So you're, everyone is welcome to stay. There will be a, a short presentation from uh, Lucas and Lois Richard talking about their ministry in Africa. So I think it's uh, bring a side and a dessert and uh, the main course will be taken care of. You know, I was thinking uh, this week, you know, last, last Sunday there was a great uh, tragedy in Sutherland Springs, Texas. And, um, you know, our, our hearts have been heavy this week as we think about um, just the people that lost their lives gathered together on the Sunday morning uh, like we are today. And, uh, you know, all, all we can do is grieve and, and lift them up to the Lord. But uh, a verse that I was thinking of this week is um, from Proverbs. Proverbs, I think, is 19.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And, you know, from the outside looking in, people can look at that and say, well, uh, why weren't those people protected? Why weren't they kept safe? And, and we don't have the answer to that, but we know that we have a hope that goes beyond this life, beyond this world, beyond this day. And so we gather, and it's by faith that we do so, by faith that we continue to affirm that we have uh, something bigger than this life. Um, let's pray, and then the offering will come around, and we'll continue worshiping together. Uh, Father, our hearts are heavy as we think of, of the loss of our brothers and sisters in Texas. And, um, Father, we pray that as we gather together uh, this morning that you would be sweeter to us, that you would be um, more dear to us, uh, that we would remember how short this life is, that how fleeting uh, all these things are that consume our thoughts, that we would remember that you are our strength, you are our um, tower, you are our refuge. So we just commit our time to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good to be with you this morning. If you're new, I'm Mark Klein on the elder team here. Uh, our primary teaching elder, Steve Smith, is on vacation. To use the scripture, he's on a vacation predestined before the foundation of the world. <laughs> it was, it was uh, set in time before he knew of us anyway. Um, he's in a place that I don't have the heart to mention to you this morning, but uh, we are going to continue our series in the book of 1 John. If you'd open with me to 1 John chapter 2, please. And to open, I just want to ask the question, how do you know someone is a Christian? I mean, how do you really know that someone's a Christian? Is it because they prayed a prayer one time or was baptized as an infant or an adult? Sometimes it's kind of hard to tell for sure. You know, sometimes uh, someone has faith, but maybe they're going through a down time and it doesn't really look like it. Sometimes it seems like someone's a really strong Christian and then after some time, you see them kind of fizzle out and disappear. So how do you know? I'm reminded of the parable Jesus told of the sower and the seeds where he scattered different seeds 
Some were snatched up right away by Satan. Some grew up strong at first, but because they didn't really have a root, the sun came out and scorched it. Some grew up, but then got entangled and overgrown by the weeds and the, and the thorns, which reminds us of the cares and the worries of this world. But then some grew up strong and bore fruit. And so what kind of plant are we? What kind of seed are we, spiritually speaking? And how do we know? And not just how do we know if that person is, knows God, if that person is a Christian, but how do I know I am a Christian? And John, uh, the beauty of writing, reading 1 John is that he kind of just tells it like it is. John is sort of a black and white, hard-hitting preacher. In fact, he and his brother James, if you remember, got the nickname Sons of Thunder. Do you remember that? Sons of Thunder. You can kind of imagine how they got that nickname. A couple boys <laughs> growing up, zealous on fire. There's actually one incident in the Gospels we read of where John, uh, because of what some people said to Jesus, he's like, Lord, do you want us to call fire down on these people? That, that's the Apostle John. You know, a man who's zealous, who's passionate, um, who sees things black and white, who preaches it and says it like it is. At this point in his life, as he's writing this letter, he's a little older. He's been a little more tempered and seasoned and balanced out over the years, and certainly by his time with the Lord Jesus. Um, but how do you know someone knows God? How do you know who's going to heaven? I had a professor at Emmaus Bible College once say, uh, uh, when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at some of the people who are there. When we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at some of the people who aren't there. And most of all, we'll be happy that we're there. <laughs> I think that's good. Well, the word know is used 40 times in this brief letter of 1 John. And I think John, God, really wants us to know something, to be assured, to have confidence about something. And this is what he does. In this letter, he gives us some different tests, some black and white, pass-fail tests that if you pass it, you know you can have confidence, you can have assurance that you truly know God. If you fail it, well, you've got to examine yourself. There's a question mark over you. So the first test last week Steve talked about was to walk in the light in chapter 1. It says God is light, he's holy, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All believers sin, we must confess that sin. And he says, for the believer who sins, we confess that sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins as a Christian, it's not about uh, restoring our relationship to God. Relationship is a done deal for the believer who has received Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. But sometimes we need to restore our fellowship with God. You know, kind of think of the parent-child relationship here. Then we come to chapter 2, and we're going to read about the second test. The first test was to walk in the light, not walk in the darkness. This, this test is going to be to live in obedience to God. Let's just listen to these verses here. First six verses of chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. By this, we know that we know him if we obey his commandments. He who says, I know him, but doesn't obey his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But he who keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. 
He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. My first point is our calling to holiness. And this is John just saying it like it is. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. He addresses them as his children. He, he, for the most part, he believes the people he's writing to are Christians that are born of God. But he says one way that you can know you're a child of God is to not sin. That's the calling. Um, when we're saved, a change takes place. If we truly know God from that point on, there should be a progression throughout our lives. It's not always a steady progression. Sometimes it's a little bumpy along the way. But over the course of our lives, there's a progression towards Christ-likeness, becoming more holy in our lives. And John is saying, for Christians, don't sin. Now, we know we can't do that perfectly, right? We're not perfect. We don't preach perfection. But we do preach Christ-likeness. And the standard is holiness. In 1 Peter 1.16 he says, for it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And in Matthew 5:48, he says, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy, be perfect. These are present tense commands, and he's saying, be holy and perfect now. And that drives us to realize that we can't be holy, we can't be perfect now. But positionally, this is the beauty of it, through the sacrifice of Christ, positionally, believers are holy before God. We call that justification. Hebrews 10, 12. I love this verse. It says, For by one offering, Jesus, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Think about that. The calling is perfection. The calling is holiness. We can't be that. We can't do that perfectly. But it says, By one offering, the offering of Jesus Christ, he has perfected forever. And then it says, Those who are being sanctified. So in God's eyes, He's not seeing us in judgment and wrath. If we have received the Lord Jesus as our Savior, he's perfected us forever in his sight. But we're still those who are being sanctified. We're still on a journey towards heaven. I like that verse. Now, the question is, do believers have to sin? Do we have to sin? Believers don't have to sin. The Holy Spirit is in us. We've received the Holy Spirit who can empower us not to sin. This verse in Galatians 5, 16 the Apostle Paul wrote, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's saying if we're walking in the Spirit, if we're in fellowship with God and obeying Him and following Him, we're not going to be following the lust of the flesh. But in the very next verse, in Galatians 5, 17, he acknowledges the reality of the battle and the struggle we have. He says, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh then these are contrary to one another. So you, you do not do the things that you wish. Don't you feel that struggle sometimes? The Spirit's in us, yearning in us to follow God and obey His commandments and to walk faithfully with Him. But then we have, still have this fleshly way of thinking that's warring inside of us. If you want a real personal look in the Apostle Paul's heart, you can look in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, just a real deep dive into his emotions and his struggle. In Romans seven nineteen, he says... I don't do the things I want to do, and I'm, not, and I'm not doing the things I shouldn't do. So he's saying, I, I want to obey God. I want to follow God. I want to obey his commandments. But I find myself sometimes not doing that. And sometimes, and I don't want to sin. I don't want to walk fleshly anymore because I belong to Christ. But sometimes I find myself doing that. And there's a real battle in us. And now John is 
like I said, kind of black and white and hard-hitting, and he says, don't sin. And in verse 3, we're going to see that he says, but this is how we know him, if we obey his commandments. So here's John saying, don't sin, obey his commandments. But then there's some tenderness in his heart too. In the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2, you just see him kind of step aside for a little bit as he's thinking about the reality of our struggle with sin and the reality of the battle for these people hearing his words. It's almost like he puts in a parenthesis here. He just, his heart kind of softens and melts for his people. And he says, and if anyone sins, don't sin, obey the commandments, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The goal and aim is for holiness and faithful obedience, but we still struggle. At the end of Romans 7, you'll see that when the Apostle Paul's reflecting on his inner struggle, he says, I thank God for the victory in Christ Jesus. That in the end, there is a victory for every believer over sin one day. Now, we look at this verse here, we're told that we have an advocate before the Father. Advocate. That's an interesting word. The same word for advocate here in the Greek parakletos is used in John 14, 15, and 16 for the Holy Spirit. And there it's translated the Holy Spirit as our helper, our helper. Here it's called our advocate, referring to Jesus. An advocate just means one called to one side, to one's aid. It's a legal term for someone who advocates or pleads the case before a judge. Jesus is our advocate, our intercessor before the Father. In Romans 8.34, says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we know that Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, is in heaven, and today it says he is there making intercession for us. And I kind of asked the question, what is he doing? What does that mean that he's making intercession for us today? Um, just by way of illustration, and this is not a perfect illustration, this is just to make a point, but um, I don't think it dramatically plays out like this really, but think of a courtroom. Not, not exactly like court TV or the movies or something like that, but just the heavenly courtroom. And you see he's the advocate before the Father. The Father's the judge. He knows everything about us. The Father knows we're guilty of our sins. We don't really have a case. <laughs> um, we actually have a record of sin in the courtroom that clearly condemns us. And we have an accuser in this courtroom. The accuser is the devil. Did you know that he accuses the saints before God day and night? Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So he's been banished from his throne in heaven once a holy angel, the most beautiful cherub, Lucifer. You can read about this in Isaiah 14 and also in Ezekiel. He's been cast down out of heaven, but he, in some way he still has access to God. You see that in Job chapter 1, some dialogue between Satan and God about Job. You see it here in Revelation 12.10. He accuses the saints before God in his throne day and night. We have an accuser. Satan actually means adversary. Do you know that? that? That's a fitting name for our enemy. So we need some help in this heavenly courtroom. And we have an advocate, we're told. We have an advocate who's like what we would say today is our defense attorney. He comes alongside. He comes to our aid. And this defense attorney knows we're guilty too. 
And he's, his goal isn't even to plead that we're innocent. He knows we're guilty. But what he uses as the solid base for his argument to plead his case is his own sacrificial death on the cross long ago. That, that's all he goes back to. He says, I paid for that, charged that to my account. All is paid for at the cross. It was nailed to the cross. Everything, the whole record of sin, everything the devil accuses him or her of has been paid for. And that's our advocate. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is also labeled to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, we don't have power to save ourselves. We don't have power to keep ourselves in the faith. But God has the power to save us. He has the power to keep us. And part of that power of keeping is through Jesus interceding for us on our behalf. He says to the Father, it's like, it's like he says to the Father, and I don't think it dramatically plays out like this, but, but just picture him saying as our defense attorney, put that to my account. Charge that to my record. I paid for that at the cross completely, fully at the cross. And it says he always lives to make intercession for us. You know what that tells me? Is that there is never going to be a time where he casts us away because he's always living always making intercession for us. There's never going to be a time where we're cast away. Now, fortunately, I've never needed a defense attorney. Um, my mom said I could make a good lawyer someday when I was a kid, and I think that had something to do with the way I argued with her sometimes. <laughs> Sorry, Jesselyn, but uh, sometimes those things pass down to our kids. But I think that's something the way to do I, I argued, you know. But if you've been in a situation where you've needed someone to come to your aid, whether in a court or just someone to vouch for you, to intercede for you, to advocate for you. Isn't it good when you have someone who's capable and able and just to come in alongside you and help you in that time of need, right? Whether it's a lawyer or someone else. I, uh, I heard this story about 20 years ago about my family, and I had asked my mom to help me remember the details about it the other night. Back in World War II days, my grandpa, James Gillette, uh, signed up for the service going to World War II, figured he'd get drafted anyway, he signed up for the service. His brother Donnie also attempted to sign up for the service, but he ran into a little bit of trouble. You see, when he was born, and born at home back in those days in rural Iowa, he was born at two pounds. And back in that day, you know, even today that's kind of dicey, but, you know, back in that day especially. And the doctor didn't think he'd make it through the night, so he put deceased on the birth certificate. Um, well, he, he didn't decease, he grew up. And I don't know if they didn't realize that he put deceased on the birth certificate or what happened there, but when he went to register for the service, that was a problem. <laughs> he had to prove he was who he said he was. He had to prove that he was alive. And so he had to get his medical records, his uh, school records. He had to get his teacher, doctor, pastor, relatives and neighbors and friends to come to a hearing and vouch for him that he was Donnie Gillette. He was who he said he was. He's alive and able to go into the service. They came alongside him. They advocated for him. And just think, we're guilty sinners before a holy God. We have no case. We're guilty. Everybody in heaven knows it. And then we have one who comes along our side and advocates for us, who pleads our case for us, says, I paid it. That's how he can be a child of God and never cast out because I paid it. I paid for his sins. Notice the little phrase here, too. He says, with the Father. We got we to point that out because it's not just a heavenly judge constantly standing over us, looking for us to mess up, standing over us in judgment, but it's with the Father. 
The son is pleading his case with his own father. There's a verse later in this epistle of John, the letter of John, 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The father is a loving father, a loving father. And out of his love, he, he shows us mercy, not giving us what we deserve, his wrath and his anger and his judgment on our sin, but he loves us and withholds that judgment and put it, all, put it all on his son, Jesus. In his love, he sent his son to be the sacrifice that satisfied his anger and wrath. He's a loving father. Let us never forget that. Not just a judge, but a loving father. We're born into the family of God. It's eternal life. And when we sin, like I said, it doesn't break the relationship to God, but it does break fellowship with God in our walk with him. You know, think of a child who disobeys his parent and mouths off or whatever it is, that relationship is still there. Parent, child, nothing's going to break that relationship. But the fellowship between the parent and child sometimes is broken and needs to be restored. And confession of sin is how that happens. We confess our sin before the Father, and he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, chapter 1. Now, I like uh, that Jesus is also given a title here. Do you see it? He's called Jesus Christ the righteous or the righteous one jesus is given a lot of titles throughout the bible you know he's called the prince of peace the alpha and the omega the lion of judah but here he's called the righteous one and you gotta ask the question why this title right here what is he saying with that he's saying he's the righteous one he's the righteous one who made a righteous sacrifice to pay for our sins he took it all upon him and exchanged our sin with his righteousness. And so uh, that brought to mind 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that beautiful? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's the righteous one. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see a sinner under judgment for those who have received Christ, he sees, he sees a saint, justified, perfected in his sight. Not because of what any, anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done. John goes on to say here in verse 2, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Your version, if you have the NIV, might say, He is the atoning sacrifice, or the sacrifice that atones. I'm using New King James. So we get this beautiful word, propitiation. <laughs> Um, propitiation is not a word we typically use. In fact, it's not really used outside of the Bible. It's the word halasmos. Here's what it means, propitiation. It's easy. It's simple. Appease, to appease. We know what it means to appease someone, right? Um, the angry father or the judge or whatever, you, you can be appeased, right? Um, to satisfy, to placate. It points back for the Jews they, they understood this because for the Jews it pointed back to a time in the Old Testament where they made animal sacrifices to appease, to placate, to satisfy, to make propitiation for God's wrath on sin. And it didn't really take away the sin, but it appeased his wrath for a while. And that's what he asked of them. It says here that Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation. He didn't just make another animal sacrifice to temporarily appease the wrath of God says he himself is the propitiation for our sins. His own sacrifice paid for our sins in full, and he lives forever, so we know 
that that sacrifice is an all-time sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. The Old Testament priests, they, they keep dying one after another, after another. But we see Jesus, who is an eternal priest, one who made a sacrifice that is for all time. Doesn't mean a sacrifice continues to be offered. I know some churches might say that, but it was a once-for-all sacrifice. He offered the sacrifice once, and it appeased the wrath of God. It made propitiation for our sins. John Stott, I like how he says it here. He says, the sacrifice is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. An appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. Put in plain terms, he made a sacrifice on the cross to take away our sins. It's a sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath on sin. You know, some people don't like to think about God as a God of wrath. But that's what we read in the Bible. In John 3.36, it says, He who believes on the Son has life. Who does not believe on the Son does not have life. And the wrath of God abides on him. So for those who have trusted in Christ, there's no wrath. But if you haven't trusted in Christ and received the gift of eternal life through his sacrifice for your sins, the wrath of God abides on you. That's what that's saying. But we have, as a believer, a defense attorney who's paid it all. It's not often that you hear of a defense attorney paying the fine for the guilty defendant. But that's what we have here. We're the guilty defendant, and our fine's been paid, and it's been paid by our defense attorney, the Lord Jesus. He's nailed everything to the cross, it says in Colossians 2. Now, before I move on, I just want to look for a moment at this last phrase in verse 2. He says, this is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, John is writing to Jews. They had a great history as the people of God. They understood everything about propitiation. They understood the mercy seat and the sprinkling of blood and all that stuff. They thought they were God's special people, and they were. But when Christ came, it was for the whole world. It's beyond, it's beyond just the Jewish people. It's beyond the 12 tribes of Israel. It's beyond this church he's writing to. He says, this is a sacrifice that is sufficient in its power to pay for the sins of anyone in this world. There's a world beyond Israel. I was drawn to some verses about the demographics in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and 7. You know what the demographics say about the people of heaven one day? Revelation 5, 9 to 10, and this is John writing this too. He says, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a sacrifice not just for Israel, but all nations. Not just for white middle-class America, but for all people groups. Not just for the 12 tribes of Israel, but for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We support some missionaries here in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is one of the most complex linguistically and culturally nations of the world. In Papua New Guinea alone, there's a thousand people groups and 830 languages, which is 20% of the world's total. 
And here he says, out of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, the sacrifice of Christ has been made for all kinds of people, all kinds of sinners all over the world. Not just for us here in America. We need to think globally. We need to think about the fact that Christ died for people all over the world. You know, we have a church on about every corner here, but there's some parts of the world. In fact, there's a section of the world, a wide swath across northern Africa and Asia called the 1040 window. Have you heard of it? It's kind of like a skinny rectangular box, 10 degrees latitude to 40 degrees latitude, kind of diagrams this rectangle. These are the least reached people groups of the world with the gospel of Christ, where they have little to no witness of our Savior. And he's saying, even for those people, those nations, those tribes, those people groups, I have made a sacrifice that can pay for their sins. So we need to be praying for that part of the world. Uh, we're going to hear about Liberia next week. Uh, we heard earlier this summer about Nepal from Matt Deaver. We need to be praying for our missionaries and that the gospel will go forward in all parts of the world because Christ has made a sacrifice that can pay for the sins of anyone in this world. Um, moving on here to verse 3. Our response to this great truth is our obedience. He says, now by this we know that we know him. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. If we say we know him but don't keep his commandments, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in us. By this we know that we are in him. And it says in verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. This is our second test. Last time, our first test last week, how do we know him? Walk in the light, not in the darkness. If we're walking in the darkness, we're lying. If we claim to be a Christian, we walk in the light. If we walk in the light, we can have assurance and confidence that we belong to God. Here's our second test, is to live in obedience to God's commandments. It's kind of a pass-fail test, right? Uh, we do this in the office for compliance regulations in the bank. We say, you know, we develop these tests and we test our loans to see if they pass the test or they fail the test. Pass, fail. Here's how you fail the test. Verse 4, if you claim to know God and don't obey his commandments. You claim to know God, you claim to be a Christian, claim to be a believer, but you don't really have a heart to obey God. That puts a question mark over your salvation if you don't have a heart to obey God. Not that I want you to all doubt in your salvation, the point of this here is to assure us and give us confidence we know him, but it's calling us to examine ourselves. If we claim to know God, is, do we have a willingness to obey whatever he asks of us? We're not going to do it perfectly. That's what we just talked about. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. But is that our heart's desire to please him? How you pass the test in verses 3, 5, and 6, we keep his commandments. We keep his word. We walk just as he walked, verse 6. That's how we can have confidence. When we see that, that pattern and that attitude and that lifestyle in us, that should give us confidence and assurance that we truly know God as our Lord. And we do so out of gratitude and love. We don't just keep commandments like in the Old Testament where they said, do not, do not, do not. Obey the law, you break the law, God's wrath is coming on you. But we now, because we've been saved by the blood of Christ, we now obey out of gratitude and love. We, because we love God, we don't make idols and worship other gods. Because we love God, we're going to honor our parents. Because we love God, we're not going to 
uh, lie and steal and murder and the rest of the commandments because we love God. That's what motivates our obedience to his commandments. Now, what is your pattern of life? If you look back over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, do you see any kind of progression towards Christ-likeness? We should see that to some degree. Um, I've got a chart here, and uh, this chart doesn't represent everyone perfectly, but I think it's a good, it's good. It uh, shows us that at first, when we're non-Christian, we're not saved. We're not growing in holiness. There's some, we, some people are better than others, and some do good along the way, but, but we're not saved. And then there's a point of conversion where you come to Jesus Christ, surrender to him as your Lord, and there's an immediate jump in your growth in holiness. And then from then on, because you're born again, because you're regenerated, there's an upward trajectory over the course of your life. There should be. Now, it's not a smooth, straight line. Uh, sometimes it's a little bumpy, right? And then one day, we will be perfect in heaven. That's what this shows here. Maybe you identify a little bit more with this next chart, the price of gold, <laughs> um, where it's kind of bouncing all over the place from hour to day to week to month to year, up and down. But overall, for the believer, it should be in an upward trajectory. Sometimes it might feel like climbing a mountain. I remember about 20 years ago as a teenager, trying to climb a mountain in Colorado with my cousin who was four years older than I and just doing the best I could to keep up with him. And so we're like, all right, let's just go climb this mountain. We're going to go out and conquer this mountain. So we go up to the first peak. What we couldn't see from the bottom was that once we got to this peak, it wasn't really the top. There was kind of a little dip, and then it went up again. So we're like, okay, we're going to go down the dip. We climbed up again, worked hard, got to the second peak, same thing. It wasn't the top. What we couldn't see was there was a third peak. And so we go down again and up to the third peak, and finally at the top. It took us three hours. And as crazy teenagers, we ran down the whole thing in 30 minutes without hurting ourselves. <laughs> Angels watching over us, I'm sure. But, you know, sometimes in the Christian life, it feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? Like you're climbing, you're climbing. You're not sure sometimes how much progress you're making. But then once you get up a little ways, you can kind of look back over the years and say, hey, look at what God's done in my life. I'm growing in Christ-likeness. We should see that. Sometimes those valleys are a little longer and a little deeper than we'd like. But overall, if Christ is in us, if the Holy Spirit, our helper, is in us, and we have an advocate before the Father, we should see an upward trajectory in our lives towards Christ-likeness. Um, my closing challenge is, first of all, are you even on the chart? You know, are you a believer? Have you received the gift of eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the propitiation, the atonement for your sins, so that you have eternal life? Are you on the trajectory? Are you on the chart, above the line? Or do you need to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior this morning? Believer, where are you on the chart? Are you on a downwards dip or on the upward climb? Sometimes like a roller coaster, you might feel like you're heading downwards or a little bit upside down, but we need to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Realize you have an advocate. Nothing can break that relationship to God, but you sometimes do need to be restored in your fellowship with God. And we need to walk faithfully and obediently in his commandments. Because if we do, we're going to have some assurance and confidence in our lives that we truly belong to him. Wouldn't you like that assurance this morning? Maybe this morning could be a time where you commit yourself before the Lord in prayer and the quietness of your heart here 
to rededicate yourself and repurpose yourself to walk in faithful obedience to his commandments out of love because of all he's done for you. And this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the great wonders and miracles you have done for us to bring us out of darkness into light. We thank you for the, most of all for the sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus, who made propitiation, who, who appeased, who satisfied, who placated your wrath for us. On our own, we're guilty, we're sinners, and we don't have a case. But we thank you for our divine defense attorney who, who paid the fine for us and then helps us along the way when we mess up. If we sin, we have an advocate. We thank you for him who paid the price that we could never pay. And Lord, out of that great reality and truth, may we forever be thankful, forever be grateful. We're heading to a time of thanksgiving here, and Lord, may this be on our minds and hearts that you have done so much for us. We have every reason to be grateful and joyful and thankful because of everything you've done for us. Lord, help us to live lives of obedience for you in return. We take this bread and cup now and just say thank you, Lord. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you for the cross that paid our fine. In Jesus' name, amen.